0: Economic tsunami is headed towards your church at this very moment. And depending on how prepared you are, it could prove to be devastating and divisive. Your church budget committee will need to make some very tough decisions as your church budget shrinks. And I wouldn't want to be part of the committee that needs to make those very tough decisions. So, what do you think? Will your budget committee reduce the salary of your entire pastoral staff equally? Or are they going to lay off your youth pastor and then cut all your administrative assistance? And after all the staffing battles have been fought, and there's been decisions on what to do with the the staff and the pastors, there's going to be some very difficult decisions regarding ministry. Do you continue to support the battered women's shelter or the after-school feeding program for underprivileged kids? What about that missionary family half a world away who relies on your support? Where do you cut in the ministry budget? How divisive will the struggle over funding be in your church? You need to begin that plan now. There's obviously going to be some hurt feelings as cuts are made to personnel or to programs. Year after year, Congress simply votes to increase the debt ceiling, and then they spend more money that they don't have. And as government spends more than it has, we're all going to have to tighten our belts to pay for that, including churches. But it's precisely because of taxes The churches are soon going to suffer financially. Government will soon change the laws in order to tax the church. It's not really a matter of if, but when the church will be taxed. But it's coming, and it's coming soon. And most churches aren't prepared for the impact that it's going to bring. And it's not just the federal government that's going to levy taxes on the church. Every level of government is going to want a slice of that church pie. State county, city governments included. In today's podcast, I'll interview myself as an expert on the subject of taxing the church. I'll examine why this is going to happen, when to expect it, and what can be done to mitigate the impact. Is there an upside to taxing churches? Well, not if you ask the missionary family that's no longer going to receive their monthly support, and not to the local food banks and women's shelters that are largely funded by churches but there is a benefit that we'll explore. And there's a ripple effect that's going to be felt in the community. As churches put growth plans on hold, local contractors and other businesses that rely on church funds may struggle to remain afloat. There are many who have long demanded that churches pay their fair share of taxes, and today's podcast may offer some insight into why the call to tax the church is as loud as it is. Join me for the next 20 minutes or so to understand the impact of of taxing the church. Welcome to Conversations with Myself. I'm your host, Barry Phillips, and today, as in every episode, I'll be interviewing myself rather than talking with somebody vastly more knowledgeable or better informed. It's simply more fun this way. This podcast is sponsored by Church Doctor, prescriptions for a healthy church. The reason that so many people avoid the church is that they view it as hypocritical and judgmental, They're not turning their backs on God, but they're fed up with religion. The church they see lacks authenticity. Church doctor prescriptions for a healthy church provides frank advice to the church, and some of it may prove to be a bit painful. Physical therapy can also be painful, but it results in better health. In the same way, churches that follow the advice provided in this book may go through a season of growing pains, but the end result will be a healthier church. So, Stop what you're doing right now, unless, of course, you're driving, and go to Amazon.com and order your copy of Church Doctor Prescriptions for a Healthy Church. You'll be glad you did. And so will I, because I wrote this book, and I really want it to have a positive impact on the health of the church. So go to Amazon.com and search for Church Doctor, Barry Phillips, and order your paperback or ebook copy. Or order them both, and accidentally leave your highlighted paperback copy in a prominent place in your church office. Thanks in advance. Okay, I guess this first question is the most obvious, so let me ask it. Why do you think that the church will soon be taxed? Well, there are several reasons that churches and religious organizations will soon be required to pay taxes. As our national debt continues to increase, our government needs to devise new ways to get revenue. So they're after money, and the church is a huge target with $82 billion that can be extracted from church coffers each year in taxes. That's a massive sum of money, and politicians are already salivating over it. Wow, that, that is a lot of money. Where does that number come from? It comes from an article by Dylan Matthews that appeared in the Washington Post called You Give Religions More Than $82.5 billion Per Year. In the article, which is now seven years old, Dylan explains that if all of what he calls government subsidies for religion are removed, that the direct tax on churches, synagogues and mosques, and church organizations, that would come to around $71 billion. And there's an additional $12.5 billion that could be gained by the government if the charitable deduction is taken away from individuals who now give to churches and religious organizations. That's certainly an attractive sum of money to legislators looking to scrounge up more money. Wouldn't a move like this from Congress be met with outrage? I mean, even outright defiance? You know, as, as American culture shifts further away from God, there's been an increasing demand to tax the church. This is coming from many directions. The loudest voice has always come from atheists who detest tax breaks for the church, which they're denied. They've long been fighting for tax breaks to be removed from the church. But they've been joined by a rapidly growing population of non-religious or agnostics who could care less about religion. Taxing the church doesn't affect them in any way. In fact, it might prevent them from paying more in taxes. So they're all for it. So those who consider themselves to be non-religious or even anti-religious might view tax breaks for the church as favoritism. Exactly. They see our culture becoming more and more at odds with religion and wonder why the government allows them to be subsidized. Churches, that is. And the fight to tax the church isn't merely a financial struggle, is it? Clearly, there are some ideological forces included in this effort. Yeah, that's, that's quite true. When the church speaks out against gay marriage or legalized abortion, there are many who would love to silence that voice of the church. And there are many organizations that would love to remove the tax-exempt status of churches that don't yield to their particular worldview on a given issue. And of course, those who support the LGBTQ agenda or those who insist that abortions be made available on demand, they're not alone in their desire to silence the voice of the church. What other ethical issues does the church raise that culture opposes? Well, divorce is one. More than half of U.S. marriages result in divorce. So any church criticism of divorce tends to offend people who have been divorced uh, or are planning a divorce. And there's a host of other issues where the church clashes with culture. Premarital sex, doctor-assisted suicide, human cloning. The church takes a great number of stances that offend mainstream culture in America. But it's not just opposition to the church's stance on issues. Taxing the church is considered by many to be a matter of equity and justice. Let me read you a quote from Mark Twain as he advocated taxing the church. No church property is taxed, and so the infidel and the atheist and the man without religion are taxed to make up the deficit in the public income thus caused. Former U.S. President Ulysses Grant in his address to Congress in 1875 said, and I'm paraphrasing here, the protection and benefits provided by government to the church will not be looked on without resistance by those who must pay taxes. It seems that giving religion a tax break has long been unpopular, so it's not just a concern for those who wish to silence the voice of the church. No, it's not. Many citizens can't understand why a megachurch like Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, that earns over $75 million per year, pays no taxes. And Americans wonder how the Church of Scientology, which Time magazine described as a thriving cult of greed and power, can save tens of millions of dollars every year in taxes because they've been granted tax-exempt status by the federal government. There are some strange organizations that have managed to obtain 501c3 status as churches, isn't there? (laughs) In, In 2015, a new church opened in Panama City Beach, Florida, and it was called the Tabernacle. They managed to obtain tax-exempt status, even though that they were more of a nightclub or a spring break community than they were a spiritual community. They hosted an event called Amnesia, which was a closed optional sex party that provided alcoholic beverages for those who paid the suggested donation of $20. How many other offbeat churches are there out there that have obtained tax-exempt status? These poison public attitudes towards the church. But the current tax law does, in fact, provide advantages to churches that other nonprofit organizations don't have. Section 7611 of the U.S. Internal Revenue Code even restricts audits on religious organizations. This lack of oversight, according to Dan Barker from The New York Times, opens the door to scams, crime, con artists, and abuse by people working under church status. Favoritism towards religious organizations and abuse of the status to sell products and services fuel this fire for those who want the church to pay an equitable share of the tax burden. But wouldn't the church receive fewer donations if donors couldn't use their donations as a tax break? Yeah, the loss of tax breaks is no doubt going to discourage some people from being generous. It's going to result in some lower giving. This is going to exacerbate the problem of taxes for the church. If church property is taxed, a lot of churches are going to need to sell off property that's not essential to their current needs. They may have been planning for future growth, but they can't afford the taxes to sit on this property year after year until they have funds to build. So let me clarify what you're saying here. If I understand you correctly, you're telling us that if the church is taxed, churches might be discouraged from purchasing properties for future growth until such properties are truly needed. Wouldn't that make more money available for ministry today? Yeah, some are going to argue the churches might become more generous and better serve their communities if they had to pay taxes on their net profits, which are funds that were obtained by the church but not spent in that same year. The reason for this line of reasoning is simple. Taxes on net profits would provide an incentive by the church to quickly spend all that they receive in order to avoid losing any portion of it in taxes. So you believe that there are advocates within the church who believe that taxing net profits might actually help the church focus more on outreach and less on facilities, staff, and assets. Wouldn't churches do the same thing as other organizations that wish to expand? Take out loans, pay them back with funds over the course of years. Churches would no doubt quickly become clients of shrewd financial managers and tax specialists, but we need to remember that the average-sized church in America consists of a congregation of about 75 people, They don't have the luxury of adding more staff or having enough funds to hire tax specialists. These churches will likely select the easiest option, which is to give away more of what they receive instead of giving it to various levels of government. But what about the larger churches? Couldn't they add even more overhead instead of assisting their communities or helping the poor? For example, if a church adds more pastoral staff and begins a massive new construction project, wouldn't those expenditures be classified as business expenses and reduced or eliminated even from their tax debt? Okay, you're, you're thinking ahead of me now. People want accountability and transparency for the money that they give to the church. If you discovered that the money you donated to your favorite charity was spent almost entirely on overhead instead of the intended cause, would you continue to give to that organization? It's the same for the church. We're called to live sacrificially, And that sacrifice also extends to the incorporated entity that is known as the church. The institutional church, or as you've just called it, the incorporated entity, is what people mistake for the church. But people are the church, an organized body of believers rather than a government-recognized institution. Why do believers who gather to worship need to be registered with the government anyway? It sounds so much like communist China, where the government determines which faiths and which churches are going to be permitted to exist. As a believer, there's a clear hierarchy of power in my life, with God at the top. He's the creator of all things. He's the Lord over everything. And as believers, we're told in Scripture, again, it comes out of Romans chapter 13, we need to submit to our government. But if there's a conflict between what God requires of us and what the government demands, We have to obey God over man or any man-made institution. But there's no conflict when it comes to taxes. Governments have authority to levy taxes, even on the church. What do you think the church needs to do in response to taxes that are going to be imposed on them? I believe that we're going to see a new hybrid model of church emerge. Most churches now emphasize small groups and these small groups typically meet weekly in homes or in cafes. It's in these small groups where true community takes place. There's accountability because you know each other intimately and you care about one another. You spend time together. You do life together. I see a shift in the identity of the church with small groups becoming known as the church. Let me interrupt you here for a moment. I, I see the benefit of small groups within a larger church context. When you say that the church identity will shift to small groups, what are you saying? What does that imply? There will still be large chapels where dozens of small home churches will gather to worship weekly. These chapels will be managed by a staff similar to the church that we know now. These organizations, these chapels, uh, I'll call them, will train and organize smaller group leaders and provide a place to worship together. These larger entities will be registered with the government and they will be subject to taxes. But the small home-based churches will not be registered. And they're not going to be taxed. Okay, so in the emerging church that you envision, where will giving take place? In the larger church setting or within these small groups? Each small group is going to determine what type of ministry they want to do together. And they're going to provide the funds to support their respective ministries. And each small group would set aside a portion of what they collect, Uh, let's say 10%, to provide to the chapel, or the mother church, if you, if you will, where they opt to worship together. It's a hybrid model that incorporates the institutional church and the house church. But the beauty in this model is that 90% of what's donated within these small groups will be directed towards ministry activities instead of overhead. There is no uh, rent. There is no clergy. And that 90% is not going to be subject to taxation, So the chapels or these mother churches will operate on only 10% of their current budgets? No, not necessarily. The goal is for small groups to replicate and to grow the church. As more small groups are created, they're also going to provide 10% of their funds to the chapel where they go to worship. And the staff at most of these mother churches or chapels are going to be a lot smaller than they are now because their focus is going to be centered only around conducting worship services and training In equipping these small group leaders. I'm sure there's much more to be discussed about hybrid church models, but as it pertains to taxes, this model makes sense. So what advice do you have for churches now, before taxes are imposed on the church? Now is the time to test out a hybrid model. This begins by determining what training is required for small group leaders, such as what materials do they need to use other than the Bible, Uh, What methodology will they use for Bible studies? What is their growth strategy? How do they disciple one another? And churches have to begin to educate their congregations about the changes that are going to take place. They need to know that taxes are coming. And adjustments are needed to minimize the impact and to strengthen the church in the process. Do you think that will happen? I mean, will churches transition into a hybrid model before taxes hit them? No, I think most of them won't. I really doubt it. Most churches right now are reactionary administratively. The majority are going to deny that taxation is a real issue until the day that it becomes law. Even if the House of Representatives drafts and approves a bill to tax the church, is it possible to get such a bill through the Senate and onto the president's desk? I believe so. If only two or three senators could be coaxed into the pro-tax coalition a church tax bill could make it to the president's desk. And the incentive to tax the church is not merely financial in nature. Remember that there are forces out there who want to silence the church voice on a variety of social issues. These groups may constitute a large enough voting block to convince a couple of senators to break from their party and agree to tax the church. You make it seem like Democrats are the ones who want to tax the church, but it was the Republicans who sponsored a bill in 2018 to tax certain fringe benefits that had been provided to church employees. These benefits are now taxed at a 21% tax rate, thanks to Republicans, not Democrats. That's true. The fear that politicians have is the churches, if taxed, would be free to endorse any political party or candidate. The Johnson Amendment prevents churches from doing so now but it would be invalidated if churches lose their 501c3 status as nonprofit tax-exempt organizations. The ever-growing non-religious population, if they weigh in quite vocally on this issue, can push any initiative to tax the church into law. Politicians bend to the will of the people. Well, the debate that centers around church taxes will be interesting. How soon do you see this happening? I believe that it will take place over the next year, with hopes that it could be passed into law before midterm elections take place. I could be wrong, but it may be the best window of opportunity in this upcoming administration. The cost of COVID-19 to the Treasury needs to be replenished somehow, and taxes on the Church are just part of the remedy to our national debt. Hmm. Well, Barry, our time is up for today. I'd like to thank you for being such an insightful guest on today's podcast. It was wonderful to have you back in the studio and I look forward to hosting you again. How about again next week? (laughs) Perfect. Put it on your calendar and join me with me next week on Conversations with Myself. And please like, share, then text your friends about this podcast. Next week's podcast will examine bioethics, which is the study of ethical issues emerging from advances in biology and medicine. Couples are already planning designer babies. They're choosing specific physical attributes of their future children. Now that the human genome has been mapped, scientists are able to perform human enhancements by isolating and replacing selected portions of our DNA. Science now allows us to grow human organs to be used for transplants. And medical implants are being developed to boost our memory and help us to respond situationally in specific ways. Many remarkable medical advancements are coming soon. But just because we can employ them doesn't mean that we should. Imagine a prospective employer during an interview asking you for a strand of your hair to examine before you're hired. And during the examination of your DNA, they discover that you have a gene that might cause the company to have to spend a well, quite a bit more money on your medical insurance. And it's probably going to cost them some impact from this condition that's not even manifested itself in your life yet. Is genome-based discrimination ethical? How do we restrain governments that want to use new technologies in some unethical way? And can borders even stop those who desire to pay for unethical procedures? There's a lot to digest in a single episode next week, but I'm going to tackle it the best I can. Join me, with me next week on Conversations with Myself.